0: Night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This Good informative and entertaining and show seat. will start your mornings off on Good the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, Good your night. social worker with the microphone.
1: The I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is senior care expert and social worker, Jody Gastfriend, author of My Parents' Keeper, The Guilt, Grief, Guesswork, and Unexpected Gifts of Caregiving. With life expectancy almost double what it was 100 years ago, we're at a point in history when people 85 years and over make up the largest growing demographic in the United States. Some will remain vital and active into their 90s, others will struggle with chronic illness and dementia. Social worker Jody Gasfriend shares her essential guide to caring for aging and ailing family members by providing actionable advice, illuminating vignettes, and a compassionate approach to helping family caregivers find gratification in their new role. Uh, Jody is VP of Senior Care for Care.com and is featured in the HuffPost, Harvard Business Review, and USA Today. Welcome to the show, Jody. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to have you here. Uh, Let's kind of take the title of the book, The Guilt, the Grief, Guesswork, and Unexpected Gifts of Caregiving, so we've got the four Gs, and (laughs) and put it in the framework of, the issues that your book addresses, the first one being, and of course, I think it's the most important one, obviously, is how to help a parent who doesn't want help. Uh, and that's a big issue. Uh, uh, you know, I know that personally, and also from a social work perspe- perspective. So so what do you do when you can't get somebody to accept the help that they need?
2: Well, that's one of the most common challenges that family caregivers face. And I I think it's helpful also to reframe what often is perceived as stubbornness or resistance. As people age and face a loss of independence, it's important to feel that you have control over something. And When adult children see it as their role to dictate what a parent does, it often backfires On the other hand, there are very valid concerns about safety. As people get older and maybe live alone and are still driving, adult children do need to worry about this stuff. So what I recommend in my book is to not have a coercive approach, but to have a collaborative approach and to have conversations with your parents. Find out what their concerns are. Are they worried about uh, being alone or are they curtailing their driving and, and not driving at night, and it's easier to find solutions if the, those solutions don't feel like they're being forced upon someone.
1: So, how do you do that collaborative approach? I mean, it really sounds good, and it is something that obviously is better than trying to coerce, coerce somebody into doing something. But oftentimes, uh, you're dealing, let's say, with a person in their 80s or 90s who may be lucid, but Perhaps, you know, it doesn't quite have the same memory that they used to. Um, Yeah. So there are some pieces missing uh, in terms of maybe personality that they they're slightly different than they were when they were in their 60s or 70s. So how do you approach it? I guess is what I'm saying with that collaborative approach. Let's take the driving thing, convincing mom or dad that they shouldn't be driving anymore if they're 85 or 90 years old. Yeah, that's a tough one, and sometimes
2: um, when adult children are worried about it, they feel that the first step is taking away the keys, and sometimes that's really necessary to do because a parent is unsafe and are putting themselves and others at risk. But oftentimes, there are incremental approaches that can be taken to introducing some type of support, whether it's driving or whether it's in-home care. And with driving, there are many resources out there. The first thing to do is to really have an objective evaluation of somebody's driving skills. And there are many resources out there. There are hospitals that have programs, ARP has a really good program, um, and Given the parent may not agree to that, um, then you may need to observe the parent's driving skills on your own. Um, but what, what I have found is that oftentimes if you make suggestions for um, some help, like teaching them how to take an Uber or some local transportation, that they might be willing to give it a try, but there are some situations where the parent absolutely refuses help, and there's only so much you can do. And what I've also seen is sometimes an event happens, parent ends up in the hospital, and then when they get discharged, they're more receptive to getting in-home care because that comes upon the recommendation of a health care team.
1: Yeah, I actually know someone who is trying to get their mother to or thought about helping her to get an Uber. However, you have to have a smartphone to get an Uber. Right. And you have to know right. how to use the smartphone, which sort of, at this person was 89 years old, had you know was didn't have and wasn't going to have, so that was an issue. But, uh, yeah, I think that's true. Sometimes a crisis does happen, obviously. They're in hospital, then they come out, and then things have changed, and uh, they're more amenable to giving up some, well, giving up driving, for instance. Um, but what else? What other? I mean, that's one of the issues. But there are other things that I think that uh, elderly, the elderly person is concerned about when it comes to giving up their independence. Even having help that you, uh, say, may get for your parent. Uh, to come into the house to help them, it feels like someone's. It's invasive. It's right. Uh, it
2: feels like yeah. a stranger
1: is coming into the the exactly. home. Exactly. And,
2: and if you put put yourself in their shoes, you can really understand it. Um, oftentimes, you know, parents will say, "Well, I, I don't want someone sitting around for four hours while I'm at home." Um, so, you know, what I found is that um, it's important to have help that doesn't feel. Too intrusive. So, for example, maybe you introduce a um, home care worker that does some light housekeeping, or um, provides transportation to and from doctor's appointments, or provides companionship. A lot of times, the success is when there's a right fit between a caregiver and the parent, and that may take some time, um, but. If you say to your parent, you know, you really need 20 hours a week of help, that might be met with resistance, as opposed to trying it a couple of times. And many companies actually have something called backup care benefits. So introducing a temporary in-home caregiver who helps out once in a while, all of a sudden may seem like, hey this is really not so bad. I got some help doing some things I don't have to do on my own. And that might introduce help in a less intrusive
1: way. So that's called backup care benefits. So in other words, you don't do this, you don't sort of, say, okay, now you're going to have care for 20 or 30 hours a week, right. you, you get into it slowly. Um, right. Ha, unless the person themselves needs it right away, that's the other issue, uh, isn't it? I mean, they let's say they were in a hospital, they come home, now they need care, not necessarily nursing care, but we're just talking about somebody to be there. Uh, but they do need somebody 24-7 just to be there, and it is abrupt and it does come as a result of a crisis um so yeah that's that's another issue And, and one of the other things you maybe we'll get into um another issue that you talk about in the book but um how do you manage like if you have two or three siblings let's say who are interested in mom or dad's care but one is disengaged one doesn't want to be part of it. Two do want to be part of it. Um, you've got all this sibling stuff going on in terms of how you're going to care for your elderly parent or parents, uh, all kinds of issues there, right?
2: Yeah. I devote an entire (laughs) chapter to the issue of siblings and that's, you know, up with money, parents who don't want help driving siblings is, is one of the big challenges. And, um, You know, getting siblings on the same page um, is not always possible, but getting some objective expertise, whether it's a social worker or a care manager, sometimes elder law attorneys can be really helpful if the concerns are around money. It's important for siblings to first get together and to voice their concerns because oftentimes what happens is one sibling says, hey, mom's doing fine. She's always been forgetful. You know, she's stop worrying about it. The other one says, are you kidding me? She, She can't live alone at home anymore. It's not safe. And they're not on the same page in terms of what they're worried about. So before siblings approach a parent, it's helpful to have conversations among themselves. And then figure out, okay, we need to have a conversation with mom or dad. Um, are we going to do this together? Are we going to designate one person? It really depends on the dynamic of the family. What you can't do is you can't resolve historic conflicts with siblings. And oftentimes what siblings do is they bring in old stuff into the challenge of addressing
1: care for a parent.
2: And Give us an example That's not of that, relevant but- to what, what the current issues are.
1: Yeah, and that's a good that's a good uh, place to like let's a vignette give us an example of that, because I think it's so common. And as you say, you can't resolve issues that have been going on for fifty or sixty <laughs> years right. amongst the siblings. Yeah, uh, so how well I tell the story in the book of a a woman
2: who. Um, was the primary caregiver who most often is a daughter and she lived near her her mom and she was the one and her mom had dementia and she was the one to take care of everything and when there was a crisis she was it and her brother lived further away and she was really trying to bring her brother into the caregiving equation and and he was you know traveling on his own time it wasn't really based on what Mother's needs were, and she was really frustrated with him, but she wasn't voicing her feelings very clearly. And she did eventually say to her brother, Look, I need help, and she was specific about it, because oftentimes siblings feel like, Well, they should know what needs to be done. Well, guess what? They don't always know. She was very specific about it, and he did pitch in more than he had. Ultimately, he did disappoint her in the end. Um, When their mother was dying, he didn't fly in. He wasn't there by her side. And she had to come to terms with the fact that he did what he could do. He wasn't the sibling that she would have wanted. Um, It wasn't equal. And that's another challenge for siblings is they feel it should be divided evenly and often it isn't. And there are some siblings who are better with the emotional aspects. Some might be better with the researching, the legal and financial piece. Others might be better with the coordination of care. So it's important to figure out who does what task best um, and to recognize that it's it's not always an equal playing field.
1: So in other words, Assess what, as a sibling, assess what your strengths are and then go from there. And don't expect your other sibling, who maybe isn't as strong in one area as you are, to be doing exactly the same thing. What about siblings? This is sort of the opposite of that example you gave. But what about siblings who are each one of them thinks they know best and they all want to be involved and they all have a different approach and a different idea in terms of what should be done? for their parent or parents. Uh, and you have two or three siblings who are very adamant about how they want to implement the caregiving for their parents, and it's not they're not on the same page.
2: Yeah, I've seen that a lot, and especially when it comes to senior housing options. So for example, in my family, my father had dementia for 12 years. Six of those years, he was at home. Six of those years he was in two different nursing homes, and um, there's a lot of guilt associated with making the decision to move to a nursing home. And oftentimes that is where we see siblings really in conflict with one another. And you know, one of the things I say is never say never, you really have to make decisions based on the needs of both the parent who needs help and the caregiving parent because spousal. Caregivers are often at the most risk for injury and for burnout and for depression. So you have to look out for both of them. So when siblings are really at an impasse, that's often when I suggest getting an expert involved. And um, at Care.com, we actually have a employer-supported program where employers provide um, Benefits to caregiving employees so they can stay in the workplace. And we give advice to caregivers who are in that situation and really help guide the siblings toward the best course of action.
1: So, in other words, you're talking about how to care for your parent and not lose your job so that you exactly. can do, both. Yeah. do yeah. both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Talk to us more about, I mean, we've been talking about your book, but care.com because that, uh, that it's, a, it's, an, it's a, well, much, obviously much-needed, uh, I guess, organization, company uh, that people can go to. Uh, you provide care not only for elders but for all, all different kinds of care, babysitting, nannies, everything, but right yeah. now we're talking. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what are some of the other benefits of Care.com? Yeah, so Care.com
2: is the largest online resource for care in the world for finding, paying, and managing care across the lifespan from child care to pet care to household help to senior care, which is my area of expertise. And people can go on the site and hire caregivers and match them to the needs of their family members. And um, it's a it's in 20 countries, so and we have a, a very large number of caregivers and families on the site. And we also have a program that I'm really passionate about, which is called Care at Work. And I mentioned the issue of caregiving employees, which I was one um, when I was a sandwich generation caregiver with three school-age kids and a husband who traveled, a full-time job, and a father with dementia. And many people in that situation don't know where to turn. And one of the more exciting things is many employers are saying, you know what, there is a cost to having employees who are caring for not just their children but their parents unable to focus at work. So we're going to provide supports to them. And we have a whole range of supports to help uh, employees in that situation so that they don't have to choose between work in caregiving.
1: So senior care is your area of expertise, obviously. You're VP in uh, senior care at uh, care.com. Did that come, that interest as a social worker, did that come from your own personal experience or how how did you get into that? How did you sort of go in that direction uh, to become an expert uh, in in senior care?
2: Well, um, now I'm dating myself, but way back when in the early 70s, my grandmother ended up moving near us and she had what they called then senility. And, um, you know, it was probably Alzheimer's disease and we ultimately had to put her in a nursing home. And at the age of 14, my parents insisted that I visit My grandmother several times a week. Well, you can imagine how exciting that was for a (laughs) fourteen-year-old.
1: Not on your list of things to do, right? Or fun things to do. Yeah. But an interesting
2: thing happened because I visited my grandmother in that nursing home for four years, um, probably three or four times a week. And at first, was a chore. It was kind of scary. Um, I didn't like it. And over time, and I write about this in the book, I saw the people in the nursing home not just as scary old people but as people with stories and I got to know them and I started looking forward to going to the nursing home and entering their world and seeing beyond patients sitting in chairs and uh, then when my own father got dementia I had been working in healthcare for many years and I experienced firsthand what it's like to go through that experience of caring for a parent um, with a devastating illness, which there are um, 15 million family caregivers in the United States caring for over 5 million people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So there are a lot of us experiencing that. And, and guilt is a constant companion as a caregiver, especially when you have your own family and a job and you're juggling many different responsibilities. And I really thought, you know, people really need a guide. People need to be able to acknowledge the conflicting emotions that come with caregiving, which can be sadness and frustration and anger. And the other part of uh, my experience is that there were unexpected gifts of caregiving, And I felt that that aspect has received far less attention than the burdens. So I wanted to give people a tool to be able to go through the emotional journey, have some pragmatic tools at their disposal to be able to make good decisions, and also open themselves up to the unexpected joys of caregiving.
1: Let's talk about some of those unexpected joys. Uh, you know, what are they? Because you're right, I don't think people think of caregiving in those terms. It really, when you think about it, it becomes, I have a job to do, I have to take care of somebody, I have to juggle my time, it's, it's, good. Right. it's you know, all of these things. And then feeling guilty and, and ashamed, even ashamed that you're thinking right. that way um, and not realizing. You know, just not realizing that, hey, maybe there are some things there that you're going to feel good about. So what are they or what are some of them? What feelings or well, emotions? You know, yeah. an
2: interesting uh, research just recently came out through ARP that 90% of family care- caregivers experience more positive emotions than negative ones. That would be surprising to many people. Mm-hmm. I interviewed many dozens of people when I wrote this book. And uh, one of the things that I asked people, what were the positive aspects of caregiving? And what surprised me is that even the people that had the most difficult experiences, and that those were often people who were caring for mentally ill parents or abusive parents or parents who had been neglectful, found in that experience some life-changing uh, aspect to caregiving that really transformed them. And sometimes it was patience. Sometimes it was, for me and my family, it was really my father's incredible ability to live in the moment and still experience um, joy, even with a devastating illness, to learn something more about a parent's history and to see them in a different way. I mean, one of the things that caregiving affords us is time. We spend time with our parents and loved ones in a way that we wouldn't typically do. And when you have that gift of time, often things happen. And many so, people said they have a better perspective on what's important in life, and they feel gratified that they were able to give back to someone who gave
1: so much to them. Well, I think one of the things you said, that feeling of, uh, I would kind of describe it as perhaps connectedness. You don't. There's right. no other time that you would be so close to, say, that parent, except when you're maybe a little kid, but as an right. adult. So it gives you an opportunity to just have emotional reactions and connectedness that you wouldn't have if, if you didn't have that experience. What about though the abuse you, cause you mentioned the abusive parent. I think that's one of the more difficult things to do. And I see that a lot. Uh, people uh-huh. care, you know, and, and it's, it's very hard to treat somebody kindly and nice and do the right thing when they are abusing you, even if they can't help it. So what do you do and how do you manage those feelings?
2: Well, in the book, I interviewed people who made the choice to care for a parent who had been abusive and also who made the choice that they could not do it. It was too toxic. And both are valid choices because it's a very, very personal decision. And um, one woman I interviewed uh, took care of a father who had uh, physically, emotionally, and sexually abused her. But she had to do it with certain limits, And that she recognized that there was only so so much she could take on. And she felt, for her own sake, that it wasn't about forgiveness. It was really about her own healing and her own emotional journey. And that her expectations were not to redefine her relationship, but to be able to work through some of her own pain. And there were people who said, I I just can't do it. There's too much pain here. And they found other supports, whether it was friends or paid caregivers or other family members to really step in. Uh, So I think it's it's an important topic because often when we talk about caring for our parents, we think about love. We think about devotion. We think about giving back to the person who gave so much to us. But that's not the case for a number of, of people out there. They have highly conflicted relationships with parents, and they didn't feel that their parents were there for them. And those decisions become even more complicated, and the emotional journey is very difficult. So I think sometimes it's really helpful to have a a therapist involved, um, to be able to have some kind of outlet, whether it's a caregiver support group, to be able to process those very conflicting emotions.
1: So, realistic expectations of what you can do and understanding your own limits. That's key. Exactly. And, and not somebody else's, you, you know, because people look just what you said, you know, you oh, you should be loving and caring and giving, and you have all these expectations that aren't really realistic for you or your family or your whole or your situation. So that's that's definitely. I think that's really important. What uh, maybe the last topic? One of is letting go. What do you mean by that? Because you talk about letting go in the book. How does that fit into this framework?
2: Well, it's the the experience of end of life care and how people process that and for people who are caring for someone with dementia there's a term the long goodbye so there are, there are losses all the way through with my father there was the loss of his memory, his ability to read, to drive, to remember things, um, but also being able to hold on to what is still there and not only focus on what is lost. Um, And then when people deal with the death of a loved one, what is the grieving process like? And even though they're Discrete stages that people go through with grieving. They're not linear and people go in and out of things. I talked to people who had lost their parents 10 years ago and when they, they spoke about it, they, they cried and were very emotional because we hold that relationship so close in our hearts. And, uh, I think it's important also to have an outlet for that and to hear from other people who have gone through the experience and understand that sometimes the emotions are surprising. I talk about the experience of earned relief, which sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes for people who are taking on a lot of the heavy-duty aspects of caregiving, and especially for spouses, they experience some sort of relief, which makes them almost feel guilty, but that's a normal part of the uh, experience of loss.
1: Well, we only have a couple minutes left, Jody, um, and we've covered some of what's in the book, but there's so much more, obviously. Uh, and the title of the book, My Parents Keeper The Guilt, Grief, Guesswork, and Unexpected Gifts of Caregiving, Jody Gastfriend, great book. Tell, give us a website that we can go to. Well, we can go to care.com. If we're, that's that's one website to find out about what's available, obviously, out there for care. But in terms of your own book and you, uh, can you give us a website we can go to for more sure. information? Well, actually,
2: the book, the publisher is Yale University Press. So you can purchase it on that website and um, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, and, you know, I really... Um, believe that this is a very important resource and guide for people who are either going through the experience of caregiving, anticipating, um, or if you know someone else who is.
1: Yeah, it, it's a, it really is. It's, it's, it's the gui- it is a guide. It really is a guide, and it's an excellent, excellent book for caring for aging and ailing family members. Um, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great having you.
2: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
2: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. you with Arvin Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety.
0: listening to The Catherine Zox Show, if you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is
2: 866-472-5788.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is award-winning author Laura Jean Baker. Her new book is The Motherhood Affidavits, a memoir. With the birth of her first child, writing professor Laura Jean Baker discovers oxytocin to be the first effective antidote to her lifelong depression. Over the next eight years, addicted to the highs of pregnancy and new motherhood, her oxy cravings and family grow to the dismay of her public defender husband. In this hybrid of meticulous reportage and literary memoir. She and her husband teeter on the edge of mental and financial collapse in their interwoven pursuits of a rapidly growing family and defending their Midwestern city's most luckless criminals. Uh, Laura Jean is featured in Salon, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Welcome to the show, Laura Jean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Nice to have you here. So we're going to be talking about your memoir. and. One of the things that I think I had read that uh, one of the uh, critics, I guess, or of your book explained that your book is written in two narratives. can Can you explain that to us? What does that mean in terms of of the memoir?
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, I teach memoir, and I would typically call this a braided narrative. So you have these two strands that are being uh, woven together over the course of the story. Um, One of those strands is the story of my journey to becoming a mother and then sort of feeling addicted to the high of motherhood, as you described in the introduction. Um, And then the other strand is my husband's work in criminal defense. So when my third child was born in 2008, he um, left his job in Milwaukee, where he was, he was commuting from Oshkosh to Milwaukee, which is about 90 minutes both ways, and he opened his own private practice in Oshkosh, where we were living, and I became very interested very quickly in all of the casework that he was doing, both as a freelance public defender, where he would take cases on a freelance basis, but then also um, cases that he retained privately, And I started to notice a lot of kind of overlap thematically in the things I was obsessing about as a mother and the kinds of themes that he was having to work with in telling the stories that would help to defend his criminal clients. And so what you see in the book with the braided narrative is that when I'm talking about motherhood... I'm trying to filter that through the lens of crime. And when I'm talking about crime, I'm trying to filter that through the lens of motherhood. So it's kind of this reciprocal um, narrative that's going on between the two strands. And um, what I do is I kind of strike all of these commonalities between most often his clients who are either the children of, of parents he's defending or the parents that he's defending Because he did end up defending a lot of people from the kinds of crimes that happen domestically, so child neglect, child abuse, um, a lot of drug usage in which kids were living in households with those parents, and so I kind of
1: pull those two stories together. So So how do you do? That's the braided narrative. Yeah, that's the braided narrative. So okay, so. Laura Jean, so how do you do that? I mean, uh, you—it's been you've described it as sort of you had a reckless wanting for more children. Was that an <laughs> yeah. addiction in the same way that your husband's clients were had addictions? You were addicted to having kids.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so I have to say <laughs> a, a lot about that. I, I sort of I, I always go back when I'm writing. Anytime I'm using a word that's as sort of potent as addiction. I, I go back to the sort of, either the dictionary definition or the medical definition, right? And when I think of addiction, I think of a couple of things. I think it means that you are dependent upon some habit for the sake of either relief or pleasure, right? That, that, that the brain is sort of motivated by this habit, even if it's ultimately detrimental, either to you physically, emotionally, or to the people around you and then that you might also possess this sort of inability to abstain from that habit. Um, When I first wrote down the idea um, that motherhood was like an addiction to me, I really initially was only thinking of it metaphorically, right, because I I loved motherhood so much. And and what I describe in the beginning of the book is that... Throughout my adolescence and throughout my early 20s, I was quite depressed and I was always moving from therapist to therapist and I tried different medications and nothing seemed to be working to sort of cure my depression. When I became pregnant with my first child in 2004, so this is four years before um, the year in which the book begins, I immediately felt this sort of chemical hormonal relief and so I didn't at that time think of it as an addiction. I thought, this feels good. That was about all I thought of it. And then I had my second baby in 2006. And then in 2008, when I had my third and my husband started working with his clients who were addicted to things like heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, or even alcohol, right? I mean, this is Wisconsin we're talking about. So we're the drunkest state in the, in the union, as I, I'm sure you see in the news often. So a lot of, a lot of alcohol abuse here as well. But as he began to defend these clients, initially I thought, okay, I'm sort of seeking pleasure in the same way that his clients are seeking pleasure or they're seeking right, to sort of provide themselves with some sense of relief from you know, the poverty they live in or from their very desperate sets of family circumstances. But then when I went on to have my fourth baby, um, I really began in writing this to do some of the research on the neurological effects of oxytocin and I found so many fascinating things. Now, the research on oxytocin is sort of ongoing and it's developing, but I found a number of things. I mean, we all know that oxytocin is the neurotransmitter that's also known as the bonding hormone. And in fact, children between the ages of birth and three develop an entire oxytocin reception system within their brains, right? We all know that um, those first three years in a child's development are, are incredibly important and informative. Um, and then I also, as I was doing more research, um, I did find that some people tend to have more oxytocin receptors than others. So some people might respond, um, you know, more intensely to the surges of oxytocin in their in their brains and in their bodies. And then I think even more important was that I found that oxytocin suppresses emotions like loneliness, anxiety, and depression, and actually counteracts cortisol, the stress hormone. And can mobilize in the brain serotonin, which is, of course, the deficit that people experiencing depression depression might be um, sort of in need of. So as I was doing all of this research, I started to think, hold on a second. This isn't just a metaphor. This is, there is some science. There's some neuroscience. There's some biology behind the arguments I'm making. And so I really became interested in, in, in looking at that um, parallel between me and my husband's clients. And then the last thing I found is that I guess now oxytocin, um, synthetic oxytocin, is being used in some cases to actually treat chemical addictions. So it's sort of ironic in the sense that I'm claiming to be addicted to oxytocin, and yet the oxytocin can cure people potentially of their addictions to alcohol and drugs. But I think the well, reason this that it the
1: was- oxy- I just want to interrupt you for a minute yes, because the course. oxytocin, having nursed three babies for a year and a half or two years, I think one of them, uh, many years ago, but that is the what they call the letdown effect when you're nursing a baby and you get this yes. whole this feeling of just uh, of well being. It is like a, a it is a drug. I mean, it is a a, a, a chemical that does that, and opposite of cortisol, but. Which keeps you nursing and keeps you, you know, which there, there's a reason for it, right? And so I, I, I really understand what you're saying because uh, I think nursing three babies for a year and a half to two years um, always gave you that feeling of satisfaction. If things were going wrong, you sit down and nurse the baby and, you know, nothing else matters, that's, I
0: mean, you've described it perfectly. I mean, I think I even have a couple of scenes like that in the book. It's just you sit down and you just go into this, you feel like you're almost floating. There's this sense of relief, you know, as I've described, but this almost this sense of euphoria. And, um, you know, you can see it in your baby's eyes, too. I remember one time nursing my first baby, and when I started to nurse her, her eyes rolled back in her head. And my friend who was sitting with me said, oh, my gosh, she looks like she's taking drugs. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, for the baby, too, right, there's this great sense of sense of relief there, too. And I, I did breastfeed for, I ended up breastfeeding continuously throughout my births and pregnancies. And so I ended up breastfeeding for 13 years um, over the course of all my babies and finally weaned my um, youngest when he was four, which, you know, sounds very <laughs> scandalous. <laughs>
1: time um, to go to nursery school without mother's breasts. But anyway, right. yeah.
0: Yeah. My kids, inter- my older kids intervened and said, you know, mom, he's going to four-year-old kindergarten this year. I go think ahead. it's time. <laughs> yeah. So we did wean him, but it was, um, you know, it was wonderful. It's just, it's it's such a wonderful physical feeling that is the body's natural response to what's what's happening into that bonding. All
1: right, so you've had, or you do have, five children,
0: right? We have five, five
1: yes. Five, yes. yeah. So you really were addicted. but um, <laughs> <laughs> Married in yeah. 2001. Um, you're, I guess, and your father was a psychiatrist. I want to sort of get you, both parents were therapists. That's your yeah. background?
0: Yeah, Uh, and um, uh, just to comment on that just a little bit, I was thinking, you know, before the interview, um, anytime I do an interview, my brain kind of goes in a new direction. And one of the things I was thinking about yesterday and today is that I think growing up with my parents as therapists really primed me to write this book in a way. So oftentimes people will say, well, when did you first conceptualize the book? And I think for me, I was raised in such a way and in such a, Um, climate in our household that I was sort of primed to write this all along. Um, You know, my parents were both mental health professionals. My mom was a founding member of um, Transitional Housing for Women of Domestic Abuse. My dad worked in the court system to determine, he was often hired by, by judges or by prosecutors or defense attorneys to determine whether people accused of crimes were Um, not guilty by reason of um, mental disease and defect, what we call NGI. And so he had a lot of just really fascinating cases. Some of them were pretty high profile. And the thing that struck me about my parents growing up is they never spoke negatively about anybody. I mean, no matter what somebody had done, you know, if they were charged with a crime or if they were suffering from some severe form of mental illness, they always spoke of these people with some sort of deep and complicated understanding of what, um, you know, what these people might be going through. And I think all of that and then, you know, being married to my criminal defense attorney husband was sort of this ongoing foundational um, upbringing that led to the to the writing of this book, too.
1: So what do you think you because you talk about Childhood, I'm saying childhood depression, always, you said, in and out of different kinds of therapies and stuff, yet you had supportive parents. You're both your parents, non-judgmental, yeah. as you're describing them. Where do you think your own depression came from? Is that uh, just a chemical imbalance that you inherited or, uh, you know, because it sounds like you had a, you know, a pretty good, uh, I don't want to say easy, but, you know, a good upbringing uh, with support and. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's such a great question, and it's sort of like the question I'm still trying to answer, if that makes sense, but I do, of course, think about it all of the time and um, so my I mean, there is a history of you know there's a family history, so there is that chemical portion, and sometimes I almost get into this mind frame of, as you're describing, looking at my situation and thinking, yeah, I've been through some hard times but nothing too monumental and I've had this pretty stable upbringing so that most of it has to be chemical, right? Um, my brother was pretty depressed and he was hospitalized a couple of times. My mom was um, quite depressed and she had been hospitalized and then her father um, was was incredibly depressed and had undergone electroshock therapy um, back in the 60s, I think. And so there is this family history, which I think is key. Um, but also I think you know, I grew up in the country, and I remember feeling very isolated, so I think that had a lot to do with maybe the sense of not connecting as much with people as maybe I wanted to. Um, my, both of my parents and my full brother were very introverted, and so my house was very quiet, and I'm sort of, I would say, more of an extrovert than any of them. So there was just always kind of a, a quietness, a sense of feeling isolated in childhood, Um, Which is not to say that, you know, they weren't supportive and loving and wonderful and, you know, they enlightened me in all of these ways, but I remember just feeling very lonely. Um, So I think it's a combination. Um, My parents got divorced when I was in sixth grade, so I think divorce has such a um, dramatic effect on children, especially if you're in a, you know, in your formative years, so that maybe, too, was part of it. So, I think it's all of these things. I think that's what makes depression so complicated as it's just always this kind of confluence of factors and okay. figuring out which one might have more of a bearing on your depression, I think is important but also difficult to determine. Yeah. I mean your
1: yeah, well, yours sounds like a somewhat of a perfect storm, you know, whether chemical imbalance, a history of depression, but at the same time, you were f- physically isolated maybe if you grew up in Chicago it would have been different (laughs) rather than Wisconsin because there'd be people around you right
0: right Uh, and and when I still to this day when I go to a city I feel like this kind of sense of just being very alive so maybe maybe that was the answer
1: (laughs) but okay so now we're kind of fast forward you're not nursing your babies anymore and uh, how about depression is that something that you struggle with today it is
0: yeah, um, I mean certainly what I would say is that I think the reason for the, the book and the narrative arc of the book is that between 2004 and then 2013, so that, that was I, I had five kids in those nine years, which is pretty rapid fire pacing, I realize, um, I felt really good. And then I think even until my youngest was about two, I felt quite good. I was still nursing, and um, I think you know that, that helped me a lot chemically. I also think, you know, there's other... So this is, this is I guess, the, um, the no part of the answer, which is that maybe I'm not as depressed as I once was, because I do think that motherhood does other things for me that don't necessarily have to do with the hormonal chemical stuff. For example, I mean, there's this purposefulness when you're raising kids, right? There's this sense of being other-directed. So you can't, as all moms know, all dads know, all parents know, you can't focus on yourself as much anymore, and so, on the one hand, self-care is important, but I think before I had kids, maybe I had more time to dwell on my purposelessness or my loneliness or my depression, and now I'm so other-directed towards my kids and raising them that that has helped me a lot. Um, I also run a lot, which, you know, gives you that kind of endorphin rush, so you do get a little bit of that chemical surge that's similar to the oxytocin, um, so the the being fit and active is important. but. I do still have the depression, which tells me that it's probably chemical, Um, to go back to the question of what causes the depression. I do think writing the book helped me to feel less afraid of my depression. Um, And I teach a lot of books on on women's health and on mental illness. I just taught The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. I taught Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen. And there's this whole sort of um, theme that I work with in my women in literature class and sort of seeing that all of these other people struggle with depression and struggle with anxiety and mental health makes it less scary for me. So while it's still there, I don't think I'm as afraid of it anymore, which I suppose in some ways um, makes it less powerful, right? That I feel a little bit more in control of it.
1: You've become more transparent, well, to the world now that you wrote the book. but Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I saw uh, online, um, and I think it was an interview you had done, and you talking about you being a teacher, being a professor, and how, you know, rewarding that is, and how great that is, and how connected you feel, and, and, you know, being connected to obviously a lot of, I'm saying a lot of younger people. It seems to me that would be something that would be really positive and help to kind of, I don't want to say ward off the depression, but definitely... Make you know, give you some give you joy,
0: it does. I mean, the teaching is something that I absolutely love. now you can you can scrap all the administrative things I have to do. <laughs> if I could just spend every working hour in the classroom, I mean, I just I, I love my students so much. And I think to a certain extent, and I, I think a lot of teachers feel this way, you develop a kind of maternal affection for your students because you're doing very much the same thing with them that you're doing with your own children. You're trying to guide them. Help them to think critically, but also understand them and empathize with them. So I think that's a really, a really good point. That whether I'm at home with my kids or I'm in the classroom with my students, it helps me a lot to be guiding other people and to be a, a positive life force for them. Um, and it makes me feel um, positive and hopeful. Which maybe again, when I was younger, I guess before, before I had a full-time job, before I was, you know, earning tenure at the university. Maybe part of what I struggled with in my early 20s was just the sense of purposelessness. And both the teaching and the mothering give me that purpose. And probably that's something we all want in life, right, to feel some sense of, of purpose. And so I think that's been a, also a major factor in helping me to feel healthier um, in my late 30s. I'm, I just turned 40, so now I guess I'm in my 40s. But <laughs> now you're middle-aged. I know, officially. <laughs>
1: Uh, no, I would agree with you. And I think that whole thing that whole, being connected and being co- and passionate about whatever you do. And that's obviously something that you are. But I, do, I would just want to go back to one point because we only have a few minutes left. Sure. But how did your because I think is in a description of your book, it says your reckless want for more children threatened your family's middle class existence. How did yeah. that happen? Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I I actually just wrote a blog post, too, um, because my youngest just officially graduated, quote unquote. You know, the kids graduate from everywhere now, but um, from from four-year-old kindergarten and from daycare. And so my husband and I sat down and calculated how much we'd spent on daycare over the 13 years of raising our kids. And we have a very modest estimate because we cut a lot of corners, um, one thing because i because I teach at the university and I have somewhat of a flexible schedule, and he 's his own business owner, he does too. We were able to put them in very limited hours early on, but we still calculated that we spent $174,000 on childcare, um, which is more than the cost of our first house. Our first house was about $150,000. So the cost of daycare, and that's, as I said, that's a very modest estimate because we were also hiring people to help us out of the home from time to time and so on. So the childcare in and of itself was just so incredibly expensive. Um, my husband and I had spent one year. I had I had tried to be a stay-at-home mom one year, and um, we lived without health insurance. And we ended up making a couple of doctor's visits. I think there was one emergency room visit for our for our baby with a urinary tract infection and. For probably eight years after that, we were still paying those bills. Um, so that was quite staggering, right, to realize what it's like to be uninsured in America. Um, so those debts followed us, and often, you know, we would miss the payment plan or debt collectors would call us. Um, my husband had his uh, student loans to pay, so that was incredibly stressful. The other thing that's really quite interesting is that when my husband started his law practice, and he was taking all these freelance public defender cases, is that the Wisconsin has the lowest pay rate to, um, to attorneys who take these freelance cases through the public defender's office in the United States. So it actually, um, research shows that it costs more to run a business, to run a law office, per hour than the money they can make taking on these cases from the public defender's office. So there were just a lot of, again, you know, you used the phrase perfect storm earlier. When he started his practice, when we had reached our three, you know, we were at three children, right where the book starts, the law school, school loans were coming due. We had these um, debts that we were paying from not having health insurance for a year. I was back working, um, but it wasn't helping quickly enough. Child care was expensive. He wasn't getting paid very much. And so it was just sort of, you know, it was, it was um, shocking to us because we thought, oh, here we have these advanced degrees, right, um, and we should be able to make a go of this. <clears throat> and, uh, and, we, and we just couldn't for many years. It was very stressful. But I think we have our feet under us somewhat now.
1: Yeah, because I think people would be listening and say, well, here, you're a college professor. He's a lawyer. What's the problem? You know, how do you get yourself in that situation? And as you said, advanced degrees, very advanced degrees. um, And yet you found yourself with five children and and just as you described, without medical insurance. Uh, But now it sounds like you're at a different stage that as you just said, right? It's, it's. Yeah. Evolving. And I think yeah, having the,
0: the son who's the, the family having graduated from daycare is a, is a big difference. Um, one of the things that I explore in the book too, is that I think in my husband's first years in, in running his criminal defense practice, He was taking these freelance public defender cases and not getting paid much but then he also would take these private cases where people retained him privately but he kind of ran his business and this is a huge theme of the book like a ministry for many years right because he felt we both had this enormous sense of empathy for these incredibly poor desperate people who were accused sometimes of petty crimes sometimes more serious crimes sometimes crimes related to addiction. And so he would put them on payment plans, right? But they would never follow through on those payment plans because they couldn't, right? They just didn't. I mean, these people don't have often, you know, savings accounts or or, or jobs that pay enough to then be able to pay their attorney. So he and he learned and he had to learn and it was very difficult, I think, for him to learn to be more firm, to take money up front um, if he was going to work with people and help people with their cases. But Another, you know, thing that's really important that we sort of look at in the book is: at what point do you have to kind of draw that line and, you know, be the attorney but not the social worker,
1: right? Because he really was. Yeah, and that's a great point. We have like. A minute left. So oh, okay. I, that's that's true. You do have to make those decisions and make the choices. You know, you are a lawyer. You're not a social worker. Uh, but let's. You know, we've talked a little. We've talked a lot about the book, but there's so much more. So I want to mention the book again. The Motherhood Affidavits, a memoir. Laura Jean Baker is the author. Uh, it's really been a treat talking to you today. Give us a website that we can go to. You can buy the book Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. I assume, but uh, yeah, I assume this. Yeah,
0: yeah, you can get the book anywhere that books are sold. Um, the publisher is The Experiment uh, Publishing um, with Workman Books, and my website is just my name. It's LauraJeanBaker dot com. So it's pretty easy to find, and you can also find all the links to buy the book there.
1: Great, thanks so much, Laura, for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.